Let's talk about your young man with CLL. He is 49 years old. He was sent to see me for evaluation of lymphocytosis. Over the past month, he had been feeling poorly. His children had been diagnosed with various illnesses and strep throat, and he had taken several rounds of antibiotics, but just continued to complain of fatigue, muscle aches, and headaches. No fevers, chills, or night sweats, no weight loss. So he was seen by his primary care physician, was found to have a white count of 17,500 with 52% lymphocytes. There were smudge cells present, and he came to see me. I did quantitative immunoglobulins that were normal. I did flow cytometry that showed a monoclonal B cell population that was kappa light chain restricted, CD5 positive, and told him he had chronic lymphocytic leukemia. He had no palpable lymphadenopathy. He had previously had CT scans as part of his evaluation for having worked at ground zero for 9-11, and that never showed any lymphadenopathy. And also in your note, you talked about some pulmonary nodules. Yes. He was a New York firefighter. He worked at Ground Zero for many months after the event, and like many of the Ground Zero people, he has chronic asthma and multiple pulmonary nodules, which are felt to be a result of his work at Ground Zero. So every year he goes to doctors in New York who follow him for his pulmonary nodules. So, Bruce, any comments about this case and this man? Well, he was a remarkable guy. I mean, anybody who went through that and survived emotionally, if not physically, is remarkable. And it changed his life. He said he was kind of a partier before that. And this made him realize what was important in life. And he's losing weight. He doesn't smoke. He's more of a family man now. He's devoted to his children. He's helping other people. As far as his disease goes, this is how more than half the patients with CLL are diagnosed. You go in for evaluation of your heart and you come out with leukemia. You go in for a broken ankle and you come out with leukemia. And it's a strange concept for the patient to deal with that here you've got the big L word, leukemia, and no one's doing anything about it. We'll see you back in three months or four months or six months. It's hard for a patient to adjust to that concept, but he's done a pretty good job. The issue that was faced with him was he has substantial fatigue. He can't exercise as much as he used to. And it's hard to dissect out how much of this is his lung disease from 9-11 and how much is his CLL. Now, with a white count of 14, 17, 18, 19,000, it's hard to attribute it to CLL, but it is still possible. And if it gets really debilitating, one approach you might have to do is an empiric treatment to see if by treating the CLL you may improve his fatigue. But most of these patients do well for a very long period of time. Patients with stage zero CLL particularly those with favorable prognostic factors, can live a normal lifespan. We don't have much information on him regarding those prognostic factors, but so far he's doing well, doesn't seem to be progressing, and is leading as normal a life as his lungs will allow him. You did ask about the CD38? Yeah, the one test that we did have was CD38, which was positive, but they didn't give us a quantitation as to what was positive. You need more than 30% to be positive. But the other studies, the FISH, fluorescent and situ hybridization for cytogenetic abnormalities wasn't available. Immunoglobulin heavy chain gene mutational studies were not available and other things, ZAP70, for example. But we don't do these routinely in patients. I know that they're widely done because it doesn't alter what we do with the patients. If they're adverse, the patient just becomes more anxious and at this point in time, the only thing that may alter therapy out of this are fish data, because if you have a P53 mutation, 
then there are some drugs that work better than other drugs in that context. But to run up a very large bill by doing all these tests, several thousands of dollars, some of the tests not being validated in the current therapeutic era, some of the tests not being readily available, and some of the tests not being very reliable, it's not something that we recommend. Now, if his fatigue persists or gets worse, or for whatever reason you decide to treat, or the decision is made to try, as you mentioned, a trial of treatment, Bruce, what treatment do you think you'd be thinking about? Well, the recently FDA-approved standard of care for frontline therapy for CLL is FCR, fludarabine cyclophosphamide rituximab, based on a very large study from the German CLL study group and their colleagues in Europe showing a benefit not only in progression-free survival with the addition of rituximab to FC, but a survival advantage as well. However, I don't use FCR. I know the country is split on this. There is the FR camp, and there's the FCR camp, and now there's the BR camp, the bendamustine rituxan. The German CLL study group at ASH presented data with bendamustine and rituximab as frontline therapy for CLL. And they showed a response rate of over 90%, more than half of which were complete remissions. And they are now conducting a randomized trial of FCR versus BR, which again could change the frontline therapy for patients with CLL. For example, in older patients, we have to modify the dose of fludarabine because of renal insufficiency. And with bendamustine, as I mentioned earlier, you don't have to do this. You can give full dose therapy. So my frontline therapy at our institution for a patient who's not on a clinical trial is bendamustine and rituximab. I know that's not the usual, but that's what we use. And if we were not to use that, we would use FR and not usually FCR. How have you approached treatment of these patients, Maggie? I have not utilized bendamustine for these patients. Obviously, for someone like him, you're going to follow him along and watch him until he's more symptomatic. We talked about the issue of his fatigue and whether that would push us toward treating him. I think traditionally in the past, I've probably used CVP, but with all the newer agents out there, it seems like there's less toxic options to pursue. I've used fludarabine in the past. I find it a sort of difficult drug to use because of cytopenias, because I've had several patients who develop prolonged cytopenias that don't seem to get better for weeks, and also just the infectious complications with fludarabine. So I will use it if patients have progressed, but I have trouble using that as my first choice just because I think it's a difficult drug, especially in elderly patients. I guess for him, he'd probably tolerate it better. I'd be a little worried about my choices of drugs with him just because of his lung situation. I think that's something we'd have to keep in mind is making sure that we choose drugs that wouldn't necessarily have impact on his lungs. What do we know about this lung pathology? What kind of mechanism or what kind of process is it with the ground zero people? I don't think anybody knows. I think everybody thinks it's got to be some, well, obviously exposure to being at ground zero. Probably, I think that most people think it's inhalation of dusts and debris from the wreckage. And so it's probably an interstitial process, but I don't think it's clear. But there certainly are a lot of people who are at ground zero who have lung problems. Bruce, just as we were talking about with follicular lymphoma, what's going on right now from a research perspective in CLL, particularly in relapse disease, some new agents, new regimens, what's going on right now? Well, some of the drugs are similar. For example, the ABT263 is being studied in CLL. The CAL101 is most effective in CLL, SLL. And there's another drug recently published by Jonathan Friedberg 
in blood called phosphomatinib disodium. This inhibits downstream activation of the B-cell receptor. It inhibits the spleen kinase, sick. And these downstream effects result in perpetuation of the life of the malignant cells and the malignant potential. In patients with CLLSLL, the response rate is around 45-50% with this oral well-tolerated drug. Similarly, for Cal-101 that I mentioned earlier, the PI3 kinase inhibitor, where it's around 50%. But of interest with that drug in CLL, there is a transient lymphocytosis, which is of as this point of unclear etiology. There's another drug that has been studied most extensively by the Ohio State group called flavopyridol. This is a semi-synthetic flavone derivative that's been around for a couple of decades. It was initially studied via NCI-sponsored trials and wasn't found to be effective very much, but John Bird and Mike Griever developed a pharmacokinetically directed schedule of administration And this does have activity in CLL with a response rate of around 50% in patients with refractory disease, including those with adverse features. The problem has been toxicities with this drug. In patients with very high white counts, there has been an excessive risk of tumor lysis syndrome, renal failure, and death. The eligibility were modified to require a lower under 200,000 white blood cell count and still there has been some renal insufficiency, tumor lysis syndrome, et cetera. So you got to be a little careful. Ofatumumab has been approved recently for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. This, as I mentioned earlier, is the anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody, which in patients who are refractory to both fludarabine and alemtuzumab, the response rate's around 45-50%. That's the approved indication. It's also quite effective in patients who are refractory to fludarabine and have bulky disease, making them not suitable candidates for alemtuzumab. And the response rate there is comparable. So there are studies, for example, at our institution, we're about to activate a bendamustine plus ofatumumab in relapsed refractory CLL. I think the pipeline is not quite as long and deep as it is with follicular lymphoma in CLL. But as I mentioned, we do have a number of antibodies. There have been some antibodies which now have been disappointing. There was some interest in lomaliximab, which is an anti-CD23 antibody. And the randomized trial of FCR with or without lomaliximab was recently closed because of a lack of a positive result on an interim analysis. So unfortunately, that antibody is gone. There is some gene therapy that continues to be explored in CLL, This has been going on for years and years and really hasn't gone very far to date. So we're still looking at antibodies, pathway inhibitors, and small molecules similar to the follicular. Some drugs seem to work better in CLL than follicular, like ofatumumab, and some drugs may not work as well. But again, these drugs have modest activity as single agents. It's how we combine them that is the future of therapy. You mentioned alemtuzumab. Anything new in terms of what we know about this agent and how do you utilize it in your practice? We have tended to use less alemtuzumab in our practice. It's a drug with a checkered history. This anti-CD52 monoclonal antibody has been approved for relapse patients with CLL and having beaten up on chlorambucil was also approved for frontline. But it is a drug which when given intravenously 
is associated with substantial fevers, rigors, and other symptoms that require lots of pre-medications. When given subcutaneously, the adverse effects are much less, but they're still there. The big problem is it is extremely immunosuppressive. It knocks out B cells, it knocks out T cells, and patients are at marked risk for opportunistic infections despite triple prophylaxis with an antifungal, with a cyclovir, with Bactrim. There were some interesting papers at ASH concerning this antibody. There was one study of fludarabine, Campath, or alemtuzumab, versus fludarabine alone in relapse patients, showing an advantage to the combination. But no one really uses fludarabine alone. So there was another study of fludarabine, rituximab, versus fludarabine and alemtuzumab. And the fludarabine, rituximab was at least as efficacious and was substantially less toxic. So if you're going to use fludarabine in an antibody, FR is preferred to FA, if you want to call it alemtuzumab. There was another study conducted by the CALGB of FR with alemtuzumab consolidation. This was based on some prior observations in which patients had received fludarabine-based therapy for their disease and then received alemtuzumab consolidation. And those that became MRD, minimal residual disease, negative from the alemtuzumab appear to have a longer survival, whether they were considered a CR or a PR. A German group did a randomized trial in 21 patients in which patients had FC and then were randomized to alemtuzumab consolidation or not. And response quality got better the progression-free survival was longer, and this was updated at ASH, suggesting even with longer follow-up that at least the progression-free survival advantage was there. But the study was closed after 21 patients because of the prohibitive toxicity of the alemtuzumab chaser. At ASH, CLGB did a study, as I mentioned, of FR with the alemtuzumab, and not only was there no benefit vis-a-vis progression-free or overall survival, with the alemtuzumab consolidation after FR, but there was a marked increase in opportunistic infections, several of which were fatal, from organisms aspergillus and cytomegalovirus, listeria, meningitis. So one can't really recommend that sort of practice. Now, I have used it several times and had some impressive results in a number of patients responsive that had lasted for years. But I'd say most patients really get into trouble. There is a 25-30% likelihood of reactivation of cytomegalovirus, for example. So you require weekly PCR for CMV, and you have to intervene with valgancyclovir, which makes it difficult to give more of the drug because it knocks down your white blood cell count. Bruce, you were talking about lenalidomide before in follicular lymphoma. What about in CLL? Well, lenalidomide is a drug which is potentially important in CLL. There have been two major single-agent trials, one from Asher Chan Khan from Roswell Park, one from Alessandra Federjoli from MD Anderson. She started lower and escalated. He started higher and de-escalated when needed. And he got response rates in relapsed refractory CLL around 45%. And she was around 35%. Now, whether the difference is just patient selection or 
the dose and schedule or whatever. Anyhow, so let's say it's a 40% drug. That's a drug of interest in these patients. We don't have, as I mentioned earlier, much of a pipeline. It has been combined at the last ASH meeting by Dr. Farajoli, and the response rate with lenalidomide rituximab was higher than you would expect with lenalidomide or rituximab alone in this context. Now, there are some interesting adverse effects of this drug. There's tumor lysis syndrome, and there is a tumor flare reaction, which is very important for the practicing clinician to recognize. After a week or so of administration of this drug, your patient will call you hysterical. Oh my God, my lymph nodes have swollen up like crazy. My white count is going up. The lymph nodes hurt. What am I to do? What am I to do? And you tell them, take a couple of aspirin, call me in the morning. And the next day, it's gone. Before we recognize this, we'd be sending these patients to be biopsied. By the time they got to the ear, nose, and throat surgeon, the nodes were gone. Whether this predicts for a favorable outcome is not yet known. There's a suggestion it might. We actually have a study at our institution of bendamustine with lenalidomide, a phase one, and at one point we're going to add rituximab as a potential new strategy for these patients. There is a national intergroup study of FR versus FCR versus FR followed by lenalidomide which I think is another important trial. So this drug has potential. The company is moving towards its approval in CLL, and I think it can be a useful drug. Cost and reimbursement issues aside, do you see it as something that maybe could be offered outside a protocol setting right now? Well, we do. We, for some reason, have not had problems with reimbursement in this drug. However, I do know that outside of academia, there has been considerable issues in getting this rather expensive drug to patients off clinical trials and out of the labeling index. Where do you see it being utilized outside of protocol setting in CLL? Since we tend to use bendamustine rituxin up front, and for our second line, we have a variety of new agents in clinical trials, new antibodies and what have you, we tend to use it after that particularly in elderly patients, there aren't a lot of other options. You've got the MD Anderson heavy-duty regimens of OFAR and CFAR. You have RCHOP. But there are a lot of patients who can't tolerate those kind of regimens. They're fairly aggressive. 